Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac Podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's Word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org. Please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter 14, verses 14 through 20, um, a message I've entitled, The Grapes of Wrath. And if you have read ahead a little bit, you know why it is called that. Anybody read that in high school? The Grapes of Wrath? What a weird book, right? And uh, so we're not going to dwell there too long, but anyway, The Grapes of Wrath. Does anybody recognize this guy on the screen? Does anybody know who that is? You probably don't recognize his face, but you would definitely recognize his voice. This is Donald LaFontaine, commonly known as the the announcer guy from the movies. Now you're like, oh, okay. This is a guy who has recorded more than 5,000 film trailers. And he would typically begin all of those by saying, in a world where. You know, and then he'd go on to tell you what is going to happen in the movie in this film trailers. You know, so when you go to the movies and it takes like 30 minutes for them to tell you about all the new movies that are going to come out, this was the guy's voice that you so often heard. And in a 2007 interview, LaFontaine explained the strategy of this special catchphrase in a world where. He says, we have to very rapidly establish the world where we are transporting them to. That's very easily done by saying in a world where you very rapidly set the scene. And this is actually very helpful, useful to us in our discussion of today's passage. For you see, Revelation 14, verses 14 through 20, it's like a movie trailer. It's like a movie trailer. It's giving us a preview of the movie that is to come in chapter 16. All right, so I want you to think about it that way. Today is the movie trailer in two parts, and then in a couple weeks, we actually get to the movie in chapter 16. So settle in with your popcorn. Get ready for the preview of coming attractions. But before we watch the trailer, let's do what we do, which is to circle back and to recap where we've been, to set the scene, to set the the context, because otherwise, if you're just joining us, you might be a little bit lost. All right, so the book of Revelation breaks down into three main parts. Part one was chapter one. It deals with things past to the apostle John. To us, it was John's vision of the exalted Christ, which really set the tone for the book of Revelation. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Part two was chapters two and three. It dealt with things present to the apostle John. It was the letter to the seven churches of Asia Minor. And now part three, chapters 14 or four through 22, the longest section deals with things future, things prophetic, things which are yet to come, the consummation of the kingdom. And the purpose of this third part is to give us as believers the advanced history of how Jesus Christ, by means of judgment, becomes king with a view towards calling them to faithfulness and godliness. This judgment that we keep talking about, it comes after the church has been raptured, after it has been caught up into heaven to be with Jesus. And it it happens during the seven-year period known as the tribulation, where there are three waves of judgment. And we've seen seals and trumpets, and there are bowls to come. 
Well, we find ourselves right now in a time of extended interlude, chapters 10 through 15. And these interludes serve for us as a pause in the judgments to fill in important information about key players and events. And in chapters 12 through 13, those key players were the unholy trinity, Satan, Antichrist, Antispirit, more commonly known as the false prophet. And during the tribulation, the Antichrist and the false prophet fulfill two important roles. The Antichrist is a political leader who has satanic authority to rule. The false prophet is a religious leader who has satanic authority to speak. And, of course, we know that the false prophet, what he speaks about is the Antichrist. And he has this amazing bag of tricks in convincing people, persuading them to follow and to worship the false prophet. He performs great signs. He deceives those who dwell on the earth. He incites the creation of an image of the first beast. He animates the image of the first beast. He causes those who do not worship the image to be slain. He causes all to be marked with the number of the beast, and he controls commerce. And so what we find is that in all of this evil, all of this power that's being poured out for the purpose of Satan, it might cause us to scratch our heads and wonder, is, well, where is God? Where is God in all of this? Is he really on the throne? Because at this point in the story, it doesn't feel like it. And as we've said the last several weeks, that's where chapter 14 comes in. Chapter 14 provides the reassurance that though Satan is real and powerful, as we've seen in 12 and 13, God's people and purposes will ultimately prevail. God is still on the throne. He will be victorious. Have you ever in your own life kind of wondered and questioned, God, where are you? That's the purpose of Revelation 14. And John receives this reassurance by means of three visions. Number one was the vision of the followers of Christ. Number two, the vision of the three angels with their three messages. And today, we finally finish chapter 14, verses 14 through 20. Now, just so you know, as we look ahead next week, we're going to cover all of chapter 15, and you'll find that things are going to accelerate, and we are closer to the end of our study in Revelation than you realize. And uh, it's going to come to this amazing climax that uh, you don't want to miss. So again, today is a two-part trailer of the movie that begins in chapter 16. Let me read the text for you, beginning in verse 14, where it says, Then I looked, John says, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, and the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress, as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Can we just pause and pray and ask God's help this morning? Father, we have been dealing with hard subjects in the book of Revelation. I feel like in our world of triviality, of distraction, of making ourselves numb, 
God, we need to be jerked out of that triviality. We need to be jerked out of that distraction to come face to face with the realities of life, death, eternity, judgment. And so, God, uh, would you help us to be fully present right now? Would you help us to be able to focus and to listen to your still small voice? I pray that your spirit would speak through me, to me, and to this congregation this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, again, this is John's third vision in chapter 14. And at some point, John's head just must want to explode, right? I mean, he just gets so overwhelmed with all of this heavenly stimuli that comes his way. It is all meant to reassure him and us this morning that God and his people will ultimately be be victorious. And so this particular vision is the vision of the harvest of the earth in two parts. The harvest of wheat in verses 14 through 16 and the harvest of grapes in verses 17 through 20. And it might cause us to ask right from the very beginning, why are there two different harvests in this one vision? Why are there two different harvests in this vision? There's a harvest of wheat and then a harvest of grapes. Wouldn't one or the other suffice? Why are there two? And it's a great question. And it's, in fact, one that uh, Bible commentators have wrestled with over the years. And there are several possible answers that I can share with you this morning. Number one, first possible answer to that question. The harvest of wheat is the harvest of saints, while the harvest of grapes is the harvest of of sinners. So that's that's one possibility. Um, very much like Matthew chapter 13 verses 24 through 30 where it talks about the separation of the wheat and the tares, right? You're familiar with that. And so perhaps that is why there are two different um, visions here in chapter 14. But here's the problem with that from my perspective. When we actually watch the movie in chapter 16, there really is no harvest of saints. It's all about judgment. All right. So for that reason, I don't think it fits. It would be false advertising for the trailer to include material that contradicts the movie. And I feel like that's what would probably be happening if you went with this understanding. So I don't think that's the right answer. But a second view is the harvest of wheat and the harvest of grapes are two pictures of the same judgment. We see in the Bible that when repetition is used, it is um, used for effect to drive a point home forcefully. So in this case, that you don't want to miss the movie. All right, we'll give you two different trailers of the same movie to make sure it gets your attention. I think that's possible. I think that's a possibility. But I think an even better answer is number three. The harvest of wheat represents the bold judgments that are soon to come, while the harvest of grapes represents the battle of Armageddon. And so I I think we'll see why I hold to this particular view, especially in our discussion today of verses 17 through 20. There are details in that section which seem to speak specifically about the battle of Armageddon in a way that the first harvest does not. So it seems that they're two different things. So let's get started by looking at this first harvest, the harvest of wheat, in verses 14 through 16. Let's look at verse 14. The Apostle John says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And there are seven questions that I want to ask about each one of these harvests to help us understand their meaning. And those questions are in your notes. We're trying some different things today with a bulletin and some notes, and so it may not be perfect today, but probably about the 56th try or so we'll get it right. So be patient with us. But uh, again, those questions are in your notes today. We're going to go through them very rapidly because some of you are doing the math. That's 14 questions. If he's, anyway. Um, 
First question is this, who is the Son of Man? Who is the Son of Man here in, in verse 14? Now, again, our natural inclination is to say it's Jesus. How do you know? How do you know? Well, let's, let's employ a very important application or interpretive principle this morning, which we talk about from time to time. Let Scripture interpret Scripture, right? Let Scripture interpret Scripture. What do other passages have to say about this? And does Jesus have anything to say in regard to this question? And actually, he does. Matthew chapter 24, verse 30, and as we've mentioned before, Matthew 24 has to do with the tribulation. Jesus says this, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Who's Jesus talking about here? He's talking about himself, and he is talking about our text today, Revelation 14, 14. This was also prophesied by Daniel in Daniel 7, 13. It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and presented before him. So based upon the words of Jesus himself, the prophecy of Daniel, um, we see to have clear evidence that this son of man who comes seated on a white cloud with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand is none other than Jesus Christ. Okay, so you were right with your gut reaction. It's Jesus. Well, but make sure you know why you're right. Let scripture interpret scripture, uh, which leads to question two. What about this crown? What's the significance of his crown? Or is it described here a golden crown? Well, we've seen in the past that there are different Greek words for crown, aren't there? Those crowns have different purposes. Um, we've seen that there's the Stephanos, which is the victor's crown. That's what you get when you win the race. You're given the victor's crown. Then there's the diadema, the sovereign or king's crown, which you get just because you're the ruler. Well, the, interestingly, the Greek word used here in verse 14 is Stephanos. It's Stephanos. This is the victor's crown which signifies that Jesus here comes as the triumphant conqueror who is victorious over all his enemies. And he has won this crown by virtue of his death, burial, and resurrection when he defeated Satan, sin, and hell. And now he comes to enforce that victory on earth once and for all. So Jesus, the Son of Man, comes on the clouds wearing the victor's crown, which leads to question three which is, what is the purpose of the sickle? Have you even have a sickle at home? You, a few of you, okay. Um, what is the purpose of the sickle? Or as it says in verse 14, it's a sharp sickle. Not a dull sickle, this is a sharp sickle. Well, a sickle is an implement used for harvesting, more so in the probably the olden days. A long, curved iron blade attached to a wooden handle that was swung back and forth in a wide, sweeping motion. And, and pay attention to this. It was to mow down all that was within its reach, to mow down all that was within its reach. And that is exactly what's happening here. Um, Jesus Christ, the victor, will come in judgment to mow down the ungodly, which is a disturbing image, isn't it? We don't have pictures of that in our dining rooms, do we? Jesus coming with the sickle to mow down the ungodly. It doesn't fit our picture of nice Jesus. We like nice Jesus, this, this one with the sickle, maybe not so much. Would Jesus ever do anything so offensive as to mow down the ungodly with a big sickle, which leads to question four. Jesus wouldn't judge anyone like this, would he? 
I mean, mowing down sinners with a sharp sickle. We could see God the Father doing this maybe, right? But not Jesus. God the Father is the one who tends to be angry and wrathful, but not Jesus. He's tender and compassionate. He's the, the, the good cop of the Trinity, while the Father we might see as the bad cop. But that understanding of the Trinity is so very flawed and so very wrong. Because here's the truth, and this is, this is important for us to get our arms around. Everything the Father is, Jesus is. And everything that Jesus is, the Father is. The, the Trinity does not have different personalities. While they are one God and three persons, the Trinity is not schizophrenic or have multiple personalities. He is one. And so Jesus is as wrathful as the Father, and the Father is as compassionate as the Son. Now, it's important, when we talk about wrath, we kind of think about it through our own human terms about just when we get really angry and we lose it and we just have a fit and we get wrathful. And that's not what we're talking about here. Again, this is holy wrath. This is justice wrath. This is wrath that makes everything right the way that it is supposed to be. This is what overcomes and defeats sin. The truth of the matter is the Father has delegated judgment to the Son. Interesting. Again, when we think of our images of Jesus, nice Jesus, we don't tend to think of him as the judge. But the Father has delegated judgment to the Son. Look at John 5.22. It says, For the Father judges no one, but he has given all judgment to the Son. And then verse 27, And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. So according to these two verses, Jesus Christ is the Son of Man who comes on the clouds with the sharp sickle to once and for all bring judgment on the earth. All that has been building up is about to happen in this moment to enforce the victory that he has already won and which is signified by his Stephanos, by his victor's crown. Let's move on to verse 15. And another angel came out of the temple calling out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. Question six is what is the significance? Well, I'm sorry, I skipped. Hmm. Yeah, there we go. Question five What is the significance of the temple? So we have an angel who comes out of the temple and tells Jesus that it is time to reap. So what's going on here? Well, as we know from our past studies of the tabernacle and the temple, the temple is the dwelling place of God. And so the command to reap coming from the temple means that it's coming from God the Father and it's being relayed to the Son by means of what? An angel, okay? It's an angel speaking to the Son of Man, telling him it is time to reap. And so we see happening here what we just read about in John 5, and 27. The Father is commissioning the Son to execute judgment. Why? Well, because it says at the end of verse 15, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. The harvest of the earth is fully ripe. Well, what exactly does that mean? This was fascinating to me, and it was both... Um, a word of caution and a word of encouragement. What does it mean that the harvest of the earth is fully ripe? That word ripe comes from the Greek zereno. It means withered, dried up, overripe, and rotten. Okay, so that's what this particular word for ripe means, which means that the earth represented by this rotten wheat 
has passed any point of usefulness. It is good for nothing more than to be plowed under, or in this case, mowed under by the Son of Man. Now, on one hand, again, this is very sad. But on the other hand, I see further evidence of God's grace and patience. Do you see that here? And here's what I mean by that. God has waited and waited, and he's waited some more for sinners to turn to him and be saved. In fact, he has waited so long that the wheat, the earth, is now withered and dried up. It is overripe. It is rotten. Just as it says in 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so I see that here with the fact that God has waited and waited and waited to the point of the wheat of the earth being rotten and overripe. Jesus takes no pleasure in mowing down the ungodly. He gave his life for them after all, did he not? He shed his very own blood on the cross for those that he is about to judge. But the day is coming when evil will finally be destroyed, and along with all of those who come to, who have aligned themselves with it, the earth will be fully ripe. It will be rotten and useless at that point. So we read in verse 16, So he who sat on the clouds swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped, which leads to question 7. What exactly does it mean that the earth was reaped? And as I said earlier, I believe this is a reference to the movie that is to come in chapter 16, which is the bowl Judgments, the intense, quick-hitting calamities that will ultimately mow down unrighteousness that remains on the earth. And so that is the harvest of wheat in verses 14 through 16. Let's move on to the harvest of grapes in verses 17 through 20. And remember, as we ask that question, why are there two different harvests? Well, there are two different harvests because the harvest of wheat represents the bull judgments while the harvest of grapes represents the battle of Armageddon. So look with me at verse 17. So then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he took, he too had a sharp sickle. Now, we're going to ask seven questions again about this harvest. Question number one is, why does an angel have the sickle instead of Jesus in this harvest? Jesus had the sickle in the wheat harvest, but an angel has the sickle here in the reaping of the grapes in verse 17. So why is that? We've seen throughout Revelation, angels play a really important role, don't they? Almost in every single thing, there are angels who are busy, who are active, who are partnering with Jesus and bringing judgment. 2 Thessalonians 1.7 says, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, we see here and in so many places that angels are partners with Jesus in bringing judgment on the earth. And so it is here in the harvest of grapes here in verse 17. So nothing inconsistent here. Um, angels partnering with Jesus in the judgment. We now look at verse 18. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. That's interesting. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle. So in this harvest of grapes, we've got one angel who has a sickle. Now we've got another angel on the scene, one who comes from the altar, it says, and has authority over the fire. What on earth is that talking about? What is the altar from which the second angel comes? Okay, remember, there's a temple in heaven, right? 
a temple in heaven. And all earthly temples, whether that's temples past or temples future, are a copy of the heavenly temple. And so it is as we understand the earthly temple that we gain some understanding of what's going on in the heavenly temple. And so if you remember in our discussion of the earthly tabernacle and temple, there was an altar of incense, right? Remember that? That altar of incense was located in the holy place immediately before the curtain that led to the most holy place. And what would happen is twice a day, priests would go into that holy place and they would burn incense. Somebody tell me what that incense represented. The prayers of the people ascending to God as a sweet-smelling aroma in his nostrils. Now, during the tribulation, put yourself in the, the shoes of tribulation saints, those who have become believers during the tribulation. What do you think you're going to be praying about during that season? Oh, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Bring justice. Make everything right. Come and harvest because clearly the earth is ripe and it is time for judgment to come and make everything the way that it is supposed to be. And this would especially be true, if you remember, of those who had been martyred for their faith during the tribulation. Remember back in chapter 6, all the way back to Revelation 6, 9? I find this connection to be fascinating. It says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar, all right, this is the altar we're talking about right now, the altar of incense, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne, they cried out with a loud voice. These are their prayers. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They're crying out for the harvest. And another angel, I'm sorry, um, in the heavenly temple, the souls of tribulation martyrs are under the altar of incense and crying out for the kingdom to come and for everything to be made right. So we, we pray that, don't we? we will, your kingdom come, your will be done. And, and, and it's, sometimes we mean it more than others, but imagine that you are alive during the tribulation. How might your prayers be more passionate even then? And so when it says in verse 18, and another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, that angel from the altar who has authority over the fire where incense burns and it ascends to God as prayer, he is commissioning the angel with the sickle to go forth and answer these prayers arising from the altar of incense. He says, it's time. It's time. These prayers will be answered and the time has come for their blood to be avenged, for evil to be defeated, and for righteousness to triumph. And so look with me now at the second half of verse 18 where the commissioning angel says this. He says, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth for its grapes are ripe. There's that word ripe again, right? The wheat was ripe before the harvest. Now the grapes are ripe. Ripe in verse 15 communicated that the wheat was dried up and rotten, that it was useless. Well, question 13, or number three asks, is the ripeness of the grapes the same as the ripeness of the wheat? And the answer to that question is no. It's not. This is different. It's a different word used here for ripe. It has a different meaning. This word for ripe here in verse 18 does not mean that it is overripe and useless. This one means that the grapes are in their prime and they're full of juice. These are good grapes. I mean, good from the standpoint that they are at the peak of their ripeness. 
Seems like a good thing, but actuality, they're full of the juice of wickedness. Their evil is fully ripe, and therefore they must be crushed. As it says in verse 19, So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Question four asks, what is a winepress? What is a winepress? Well, in the first century, a winepress for the purpose of making wine consisted of two stone basins, kind of like we see here. This one is hewn out of a rock. There's an upper basin and a lower basin connected by a trough. And um, here you would load up the upper basin with grapes and then you would trample them by foot. And then the juice from those grapes would flow through the trough to the lower basin where you would collect the juice to be turned into wine. And you can imagine just how messy that process would be. Did it with your feet. You'd actually get in there and get after it. Juice would splatter all over the feet and the clothes of those who were doing the stomping. Um, A more contemporary image to which you might relate is that episode from I Love Lucy. You remember that? You do remember that one, don't you? And, and just incidentally, this is going far afield, but you know that in the fight that ensued in the great, in the, in the wine press with the Italian woman, Lucy somehow offended the woman and they got into a real fight during all this. And the studio audience is just cheering and applauding, oh, what great acting. And they were really fighting. Um, but I digress. So um, while that was funny, there's, there's nothing funny about the wine press in Revelation 14, for it says in verse 20, and the wine press was trodden outside the city. The city. And here's why I believe this harvest of grapes is the preview of the coming of the, the battle of Armageddon. The angel with the sickle harvests the juicy grapes and throws them into the wine press to be trampled where? Where's the wine press? Where's the trampling going to take place? Outside the city. Well, that leads to question five, which is what city? Well, the Bible's very Jerusalem-centric, isn't it? And to the point that when it refers to the city, inevitably readers know exactly what the Bible's talking about. It's talking about the city of Jerusalem, and so it is here. It's referring to Jerusalem, which, as we've seen throughout the book of Revelation, is center stage for the tribulation and what is to come after. But here, the text tells us that the action is going to be not in the city, but outside the city, where the armies of the earth will assemble in opposition to Christ in the final climactic battle known as Armageddon. And again, as it says in Revelation 16, 16, I'm I'm cheating here a little bit. I'm giving you a little glimpse of the movie. It says, and they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Again, I think that's what we're talking about here in Revelation 14 in the vision of the harvest of the grapes. So we'll talk about that in a lot, a lot, a lot of detail when we watch the actual movie. But for now, it's enough to know that this area outside of Jerusalem, it will become God's wine press, the place where all of God's enemies are ultimately stomped once and for all like grapes in a wine press. And the prophet Isaiah wrote about this um, long, long before the events. He says, why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads the wine press? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. 
So that's what's being previewed here in Revelation 14 and will later take place in Revelation 16 and 19. An event so horrific that it says in the second half of verse 20, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. And that raises the last two questions for us today. Question six, how far is 1,600 stadia? How high is a horse's bridle? And what's the significance of this? 1,600 stadia is the equivalent to approximately 180 to 200 miles if we round it off. And it just so happens to be the distance between Megiddo in the north and Edom in the south. And again, we'll talk much more about this in the days to come. For now, it is enough to know that the blood flowed from the wine press a great distance between those two points outside the city. And it also flowed, it says, as high as a horse's bridle. Where are my horse people? How high is that? Just about, maybe about four feet, five feet. Let's go with four, Jill. And so the point of verse 20 is that there will be so much bloodshed at the Battle of Armageddon that it will be like a river of blood that is four feet deep and flows for 200 miles. Now, is that to be taken literally? Some people do. I I take that to be hyperbole. As horrific as Armageddon will be, I'm not sure that a 200-mile river four feet deep of blood is really what it's going to be, but it's going to be terrible. Another possible explanation is that blood flowing as high as a horse's bridle fits the picture of grapes being stomped. And then what you have is you have the juice or the blood squirting four feet high. But what, however you take it, it's, it's horrific. It's horrific. Armageddon will be an absolute bloodbath. As it says in Joel 3.13, put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, it says, for their evil is great. So, there we have the vision of the harvest of the earth. We have the harvest of wheat. We have the harvest of grapes. This is like a movie trailer giving us a preview of the movie that is to come in chapter 16. The harvest of wheat represents the bold judgments, while the harvest of grapes represents the battle of Armageddon. Now, let's spend just a few minutes talking about application How should we then live? It's heavy. It's heavy. I think the first point of application that occurred to me is we need to pray like it matters. Pray like it matters. Again, I've made that contrast on several occasions. Like, think how differently you would pray during the tribulation maybe than you pray right now. Well, what do, why? Do, do we need God any less than they need God during the tribulation? Of course not. But there's something about the urgency of their prayers then because of all that they're going through. They're not nearly as comfortable as we are. Our comfort has a way of really diluting our prayers, doesn't it? We need to pray like it matters because it most surely does matter. It speaks volumes to me that the commissioning angel in the harvest of, of, of the earth, he moves in response to the prayers, both... In the the harvest of the grapes, he moves in response to the prayers of the martyrs. The incense, right? The altar, the incense, the angel responds to the prayers of the martyrs. And Spurgeon said that prayer moves the hand that moves the world. Prayer moves the hand that moves the world. And this was the case in Revelation at the altar of incense. It is the case today as well. Church, may we pray like it matters because it surely does. Number two, we need to evangelize like it matters because it most surely 
does. These gruesome images of harvest are certainly meant to get our attention. The image of Jesus with a sickle mowing down sinners, the image of sinners being stomped in the wine press. As we discussed last week, God's judgment is real. Hell is a literal conscious place of eternal torment. But here's the good news, that before this harvest of judgment comes, Jesus proclaimed that there would be a harvest of salvation. I love the words of Matthew 9, 36. It says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, I believe he speaks to his church today, and he says, church, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray. Don't you love how these elements come together? It's like, okay, pray as if it matters. Jesus says, pray as if it matters. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Church, I believe that the harvest, in a good sense, is plentiful today. There are people all around us who are waiting to receive the message of the good news of salvation, waiting for us to pray like it matters and to evangelize like it matters. Um, I'm going to tell this story. I hope I get it right. I think it was in a conversation I had with Jill about Bob Benson. Bob Benson's funeral was this past Monday. Bob Benson um, came to know Christ very late in his life. He died at 89. He came to know Christ at what age? About 84. Okay. And as the story goes, as I understand it, one of the, the key components to praying earnestly for Bob Benson was that when the carpet was replaced in this sanctuary, and you all did something very, very tangible, you wrote names of loved ones who had yet to come to know Christ. Do you remember that for some of you? Bob Benson was one of those names. And I say that to you today to encourage you to say, do not grow weary of praying like it matters. Do not grow weary of evangelizing like it matters. Some of you have been doing this for decades, and you say, what use is it? What good is it? I'm sure there probably were times in the Benson family when you just felt like, I'm not sure this is doing any good. And lo and behold, that day came when an 84-year-old Bob Benson finally put his faith in Jesus Christ. And so as we think about the harvest to come, terrible news. It, it, terrible in the sense that a lot of people, even people that we love, are going to experience judgment. But great news from the standpoint, God's going to make everything right. It's going to be good. But until that, we have a harvest in a good sense that we've got to take care of business, right? But Jesus says the harvest is plentiful. Church, do you believe that to be true? But the laborers are few. I wonder if he's talking about us. I wonder if he's saying, man, if my church would just get busy praying like it matters, evangelizing like it matters, then this evangelistic salvation harvest would be so big, we'd make the other harvest a lot smaller, wouldn't we? Yeah, that's what we're here for. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we, again, are overwhelmed by these pictures, these images, which on one hand are grotesque, we don't like to think about them. They're not happy, but they're true. I thank you, God, that you do not hide truth from us, but you tell us plainly. May it motivate us today to do exactly what we've talked about in this application, that we would pray like it matters, that we would evangelize like it matters, because it surely, surely does. 
God, I pray that Bob Benson's story would be multiplied over and over and over and over, and we'd be able to celebrate those who come to faith in Jesus Christ, whether they are young or old. Again, God, we cry out to you that these baptism waters would flow weekly, that, God, it would just be normal. It would just be normal. It wouldn't be a special Sunday. That's all we do around here. That's what we do. And so, God, would you, as the workers are few, would you raise us up? that we would be able to prove that to not be accurate anymore. The workers are plentiful, and the harvest, in a good sense, is plentiful. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.